Welcome to the third episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system, and cyber web. My name is Alessandro Duino, and I will be the co-host of this series, along with my colleague, Amin Lutfi. Alex, we're very glad to have with us today, Mr. Doug Brooks, the founder and president emeritus of International Stability Operation Association, or ISOA. For those who don't know, ISOA is the world's leading trade association in the stability operation space, committed to advancing the global role of the private security in conflict, post-conflict, humanitarian rescue, and disaster relief environment. Currently, Mr. Brooks is an adjunct faculty member of the University of Fiji, a board member of the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce, as well as a consultant for various private security companies. Mr. Brooks also happens to be a prolific writer who has extensively covered African security and privately military issues. Lately, he has been writing about constructive utilization of the private sector for international peacekeeping and humanitarian missions. Thank you, Doug, for being with us today. Well, Doug, thank you again for joining us. In our last podcast, we had with us uh, Jamie Williamson from ICOCA. To start off, how would you compare the mission of ISOA and ICOCA? Uh, from what I understood, ICOCA is a regulatory body, but ISOA primarily represents the industry. Is that correct? If so, would it be fair to say that ISOA believes that self-regulation is the best option to bring order and stability in the industry? Um, sure. So ISOA um, definitely represents the interest of the stability operations industry. And I, I should be clear that um, it represents more than just security contractors. So there's 120 companies that are members of the association about 15% are actually the security contractors. Um, the biggest companies by far are logistics and construction companies. They all operate in the same areas in conflict, post-conflict and disaster relief. Um, but they, they are very different kinds of companies that make up this association. It's just any private company that works in these sorts of areas. Um, ICOCA, ICOCA is a regulatory body. It's quite different. It's uh, set up to actually um, regulate the security companies. It's operated by government, by industry, also by NGOs, which makes it very different from ISOA, which is purely just the companies that, that run that. Um, the uh, ISOA predates um, uh, ICOCA. It used to be IPOA, International Peace Operations Association, and dates back to 2001. Uh, it was founded around a code of conduct, which is available online to this day. Uh, the code of conduct that this is the industry association uses was originally written by NGOs, by humanitarians, by academics. It's a two-page document. It's very simple. It basically says, here's what we want companies doing in, in uh, areas of conflict. Here's what we don't want them doing. And, and uh, basically sets out how companies should operate in areas where essentially don't have effective legal systems or effective governments in many cases. Um, we've updated over the years, we've updated the, uh, the two-page uh, code of conduct. Uh, and every time we do that, we bring in the NGOs and the humanitarian organizations and the academics, uh, and then we test it. So in front of them, we would, um, we haven't done it for a while, but we would basically bring everybody in, uh, have our uh, standards committee, and we'd bring them uh, various uh, simulated problems, and they would 
they would uh, discuss these problems out, come up with a, with a, a direction, and then we'd go to the NGOs and humanitarian uh, community and say, what do we do right and what do we do wrong? We tried to keep improving our system. Uh, ISOE accountability mechanism um, was imperfect. I mean, essentially it is uh, self-regulation, uh, but it did work. Uh, anyone, literally anyone could file a complaint against our, any of our companies, not just the security companies, but all of them. Um, the ICOCA, I think, has much greater legitimacy because obviously it represents uh, everybody. It represents governments and as well as the NGOs and humanitarian organizations that work in the same area. Uh, but it's also supported by the security companies. Um, so I think there's a, a, something that we could not do at ISOA. Um, but we did what we could. And our goal was to ensure that all ISOA members lived up to the code of conduct. Our goal was not to kick companies out. But if a company had a problem with the code of conduct or, or failure with it, then our goal was to uh, get it back into compliance. And that's uh, almost all the time. That's exactly what happened. A company would either didn't even know it had a problem. We'd bring a complaint. Uh, and they would acknowledge it, and then we'd come up with a plan to, to fix the problem. Uh, and so the goal was to raise the entire industry. I think we were quite successful in that. Um, as we worked out these complaints that were brought in, uh, we would keep the complainants informed as well as the companies and as a, as a process moved forward until ultimately uh, the situation resolved, was resolved. It's important to note, though, that this accountability um, aspect of what ISOA did is not normal for a trade association uh, and every time a complaint came in for a small trade association with a huge burden both financially uh, and time-wise because we basically had to drop everything else that we were working on because we only had a staff of like three paid people and uh, a few some part-time people and some interns uh, but we had to drop everything to deal with these complaints um, and it worked but it was again not uh, we didn't have the resources or as I said, the legitimacy that ICOCA has. And uh, so, yeah, what Jamie's doing is pretty amazing. And I think uh, that uh, what ICOCA has is something that I think uh, we would have loved to have had at the time that we started the ISOA Code of Conduct. We still have the ISOA Code of Conduct. Uh, when companies join the association, they're still required uh, to uh, adhere to this Code of Conduct and say so verbally when they, when they join the association. So it's still a bedrock of the association, but most of the accountability issues especially related to the security companies, of course, is now handled by ACOCA, which is which a much better platform. Uh, just, to, just for clarification, I mean, you, you mentioned that, uh, that accountability and addressing these reports is a very small portion of what ISOA does, or you have to drop in, drop your other work to pick this up. So what, on a day-to-day -day basis, what is it that occupies ISOA most? What is the main duty that you guys do? So, so it's a, it is like a regular trade association. A lot of what it does, um, it addresses, well, it helps with uh, business development. Uh, it helps basically companies find um, partners within the industry or outside of the industry um, to help them be better companies. It does a lot on standards uh, in terms of uh, how companies should operate in the field. It also works on regulatory issues. Um, most of the companies, I think, in ISOA are, are still U.S. companies, but, but many, many are, are uh, foreign companies. But nevertheless, they're all operating in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. There's a lot of regulatory issues that the industry can address better as an industry than as an individual company. Um, so we do a lot of that. Uh, technically, they do lobbying. We've never really done much lobbying, and most of the lobbying we did was more um, just addressing wordage and, and making things so that uh, uh, right hand and left hand of government were, were in uh, concert. Um, but uh, yeah, so we help out uh, companies that way. 
Uh, we have uh, we have conferences, for example, on ITARs, international traffic arms regulations, uh, on um, uh, well, basically anything. Uh, working with the UN, working with the NGO sector, um, we have a lot of uh, conferences uh, or, or roundtables based on legal issues that are arising. Uh, how do you treat your employees uh, when uh, with COVID-19, for example? I mean, there are issues, legal issues, about doing that, and and you have uh, foreign, if you have foreign company, foreign um, personnel working uh, in, say, Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, what do you do with them while you, when you have a pandemic like this that comes in? How do you treat them, and how do you treat the local nationals and so on? So a lot of those issues, how you deal with it legally, ethically, professionally, all that sort of stuff is uh, stuff that is addressed by the association. And also to uh, come back to something you mentioned in your earlier response, uh, that only 15% of the companies in ISOA actually consist of private security, and most of them are uh, logistic companies. But you use this uh, common category of stability operation companies, and I want to get to on from the basis of this this uh, term, this debate that we've been having across the two podcasts between Jamie and before Jamie, we had Sean McFay, who I'm guessing you're familiar with. I love and Sean. There was a yes. So there, there was a debate between the two, and Sean argued that whatever one calls them, if you have somebody with a gun in a conflict zone, and they're not a state actor, then they're a mercenary. And Sean was uh, Sean, Sean felt that any other label, be it private military, private security, security contractor, or stability operation expert, these are all neologism, and these are basically distractions. But Jamie felt that this was unhelpful. He felt that if you have to regulate the situation on the ground, you actually need very precise definitions. So I want to ask you, where do you stand on this debate? More towards Sean, more towards Jamie? And uh, in other words, what do you think, what do you think are the, the terms, different uh, categories of people in these complex zones? that are helpful for us to understand them, to spark them out, and to differentiate between them. Sure. Um, right off the bat, I love Sean. I've known him a long, long time. I wrote a review of his book when it first came out. Um, but Sean's wrong. <laughs> uh, Jamie knows what he's talking about here. The, the term mercenary, there's sort of a legal definition, which uh, somebody at the UN Working Group on Mercenaries once said, by that definition, there may be three mercenaries in the whole world. And that may be accurate. It's a loosey-goosey term. And the New York Times, you know, when it covered uh, all the private security companies operating in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, and it used to throw around this, this mercenary term. It's really just a derogatory term. And if you use, we came up with this real, real definition, according to the New York Times, of what a mercenary is. Uh, and the mercenary for the New York Times is a foreigner or a business person we don't like. Boom, there's your definition. Um, in fact, uh, yes, when you look at this entire industry, as I said, 15% maybe security companies, um, you also have uh, the logistics and construction companies. Basically, we call them the companies that basically do stuff that is normal anywhere else in the world, right? You have a construction company working here across the street from you, right? Building a house. That's just normal. Doing that in a war zone makes it a stability operations company. You know, doing the plumbing for it. You can be a plumber here, or you can be a plumber in the stability operations industry. It doesn't make you a mercenary because you're working for, you know, a company. And in fact, most of our employees are local nationals. So 
if you're an Afghan working for a U.S. company in Afghanistan and doing plumbing, you're certainly not a mercenary. I don't think even by Sean's standards on that. So the numbers kind of get thrown around. The name is kind of weird. Um, so I think uh, Jamie's approach is much more uh, methodical, makes a lot more sense. Um, honestly, you know, whether you are a plumber or a security guy, if you murder somebody, it's still murder, right? <laughs> it doesn't make you a mercenary one way or the other, but it doesn't make you a murderer. And so let's just be clear that essentially the, the, the whole terminology thing that's thrown around, it's really helpful, for, I understand, for academics and for journalists to get their articles printed, you know, talking about spicy mercenary stories, but the reality is it's just a derogatory term. We actually uh, went to the um, UN Working Group on Mercenaries. We objected to the name of that working group because they want to regulate everybody. We objected to the name and I said, okay, if the UN had a working group on lawyers, would they call it the UN Working Group on Ambulance Chasers? You know, or if you had a UN working group on psychiatrist, you know, would you call it the UN working group on head shrinkers? Yeah, it's just a derogatory term and it's a stupid term, right? Thank you, Doug. You just mentioned the stability operation industry and you mentioned the plumber. They cost a fortune normally. I can't imagine the price of a plumber in Iraq or Afghanistan in a war zone. Well, you know, this, say is if you, this is why they use local uh, people to do most of the work, right? If you can find an Afghan plumber, why the hell are you going to fly one from the United States, you know, pay them U.S. wages plus 10% danger pay or whatever to do that? You know, basically, you can pay somebody four or $500 a month, whatever the going wage is in Afghanistan, do the plumbing. That's what you do. Uh, so again, for most of our industry, you're using local nationals wherever you can. Uh, in many cases, like we saw in, in Sierra Leone and Afghanistan and Iraq, the companies will train up local nationals to do the work. And the more local nationals they have, the cheaper your, your costs are. And the more competitive your company is to rebuild the, the contract the next time. So back to the stability operation industry. I know that you have been uh, uh, working in this field, uh, let's say from its rebirth in the 90s. Uh, can you tell me more about your experience at the time, especially in Africa? Uh, in your opinion, how do you think that the industry has grown or changed since then? Sure, I got involved in this as an academic, uh, originally uh, working on my PhD, and I was looking at the role that the private sector plays in conflict, those conflict environments, um, just from an academic perspective. Uh, I had an academic fellowship at SAI, at the South African Institute of International Affairs. This is in 99-2000. Uh, uh, and part of that fellowship sent me up to Sierra Leone uh, a couple of times. And of course, that was the middle of the UN peacekeeping mission and civil war in Sierra Leone. I actually stayed with the contractors while I was up there. I flew around in the helicopters with them, both the behind uh, MI-24 gunship and also the uh, uh, the uh, HIPS, the uh, MI-8 MTB helicopters uh, running supplies out to the UN and so on. Uh, it was fascinating. And I got to interview the UN. I got to interview the uh, Sierra Leoneans uh, as part of this. But it gave me a real interesting perspective. And while the academic uh, belief was that uh, these companies were either mercenaries or war profiteers or whatever, um, the reality on the, on the ground was much different. The UN was a mess. Um, they were having all sorts of problems. Everything moved, fixed, or done essentially was being done by these contractors. Um, and so they, they were kind of holding the whole mission together. And what really surprised me was, was the level that the contractors used of uh, local nationals. The Sierra Leoneans loved working. PAE was a big contractor there. The Sierra Leoneans loved working for PAE. I think it's still there to this day running uh, the depot. Um, also, ICI Morgan had its local nationals helping to do maintenance and so on. It was 
um, it was pretty interesting to see all this. And uh, um, as an academic, you know, where you have this, where you come from this academic community, which is sort of condemning the whole idea of any sort of privatization in conflict or in peacekeeping missions or something, it was, it was quite startling. And this is where I sat down with the NGOs and the humanitarian organizations. And originally we put down, a, put together a letter. Um, and this is written by the Sierra Leoneans as well, some internationals were involved. And basically saying, look, we're fine with private companies working in these areas in areas of conflict, they are doing great jobs. We don't want them involved with this stuff. We do want them to do this sort of thing to make sure that, that they're operating professionally and so on. Um, the UN eventually did solve Sierra Leone um, with the help of the British who provided essentially the very robust uh, military aspect of the, of the mission that was necessary. Obviously there's some very well-known uh, incidents where the military, where the British had to use their uh, uh, very professional troopers to, to um, ensure that the revolutionary united front the rebels which is really a street gang to ensure that they didn't sort of upset everything uh and they held things together until the u.n essentially could solve sierra leone which is a democracy now and uh and doing quite well despite these pandemics and everything that hit it now and then um but the big takeaway from sierra leone i think in other situations is that the private sector does bring enormous cost-effective capabilities to international peace operations um Sometimes the international community, especially at the academic level, is kind of skittish about private companies, especially the private military companies. We can, we can talk about those a little bit if you want. But um, I think we're seeing that they're much more comfortable with uh, private companies being much more involved in supporting these missions. And they understand that there is accountability that you can have with companies that you can't have with the military. You can't fire the Nigerian military if they, if they have a problem. Uh, but you can fire a company, and they have been fired. Um, it's much easier to control companies just by uh, the contracts that you're putting together. If they're going to take it and agree, uh, uh, contract, they're going to have to agree to, this, to the uh, guidelines that you set. Um, so I think it was, it was, you know, from Africa, from these sort of early conflicts, you might want to say since the uh, 90s, uh, it's been just interesting to see how things have evolved. And ICOCA, the ICOCA, is really... Um, sort of the, the pinnacle of where we've gotten to, the point where we have the international community saying, okay, we're gonna have these companies, even these security companies operating in areas of conflict, but let's make sure they do it the right way. Now, just to push you a little bit more, since we're already on the team, um, you've seen up close how a UN peacekeeping force and other international peace forces work. And you've, I've, I've been reading some of your work and I see that you've been advocating uh, an uh, expanded role for private military in peacekeeping as well. Now, this is for most people would be a hard sell because when you think of mercenaries, you think of merchants of death, as you said, you know, like, um, you know, prop war profiteers. Well, you're saying they can actually be agents of peace. And if I'm right, I mean, one place you mentioned that uh, they can, private military can maybe do the same job, but for a smaller paycheck. Now, I want to like, push you a little bit more to tell us in more detail why do you think that the private military can do a better job than international peacekeeping forces? So, um, anybody who's been to an international peace operation, whether it's the UN or AU or a regional one, like in, uh, they had initially in Syria, in Liberia, they're ugly. They're really, really ugly. Bringing in thousands of young, uh, usually men, into war. Uh, situations and, and bad things are happening. Um, there's uh, various crimes going on, uh, sex uh, crimes as well as uh, mafia sorts of things. 
it's ugly. And uh, I think there's been a big improvement, a long-term improvement in how the UN does these things. And I think actually how the international community does these missions. But there's still just a lot of problems with peacekeeping uh, in general. Um, the reason that we use private companies to support these kinds of missions is because they are either faster or they're cheaper or they're better um, or some combination of that uh, to using um, sort of the military forces that are, that are offered by different countries. Um, for example, if you're hiring, again, if we go back to the, you know, you need to build a refugee camp or something, you can do that with military engineers, but it's probably going to be a lot cheaper. It's probably going to employ more locals if you hire a private company to do it. It'll almost always be cheaper than flying in people from elsewhere in the world to do that sort of thing. Um, as I said, it's easier to make rules for the private companies. You can ask them to wear the pink paisley pajamas as part of their military outfit if you want. And if they want the contract, by God, they're going to be wearing pink paisley pajamas. That's, uh, that's part of the agreement, right? You're, you get to set those rules. And uh, I think a lot of the problems we've seen, if you look at Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, with the companies, is because the rule makers are not making good rules or they're not making sure the companies are following those sorts of rules. Um, as I said, it's easier to hold these private companies accountable. You can fire them if they're not doing the job you want. Um, you can't do that with the military. You can't just suddenly up in the middle of a, of a peacekeeping mission say, you know, one of the largest troop contributing countries in the mission, go home. We'll find somebody else because a lot of times there aren't any other militaries willing to do that sort of thing. Um, I think um, after being uh, one example, when you get to the idea of the private military company operating in these areas, and again, military companies different from a security company. Military company essentially is um, working for a, a country's military doing offensive combat operations, which is different from a security company, which is hired to protect the now, protect the person, place, or thing. Uh, in Executive Outcomes was perhaps the most famous of the private military companies, and uh, they've been in Sierra Leone, they've been in Angola uh, quite successfully in both cases, to be honest. Um, but they've been contacted by the UN uh, during the Rwanda genocide to intervene there. The UN, uh, Kofi Annan was head of UN peacekeeping at that time, and he'd been trying to find any country at all to go in and, and help uh, address the, uh, the uh, genocide that was going on. Nobody was owning up to that. And so kind of surprisingly, um, the UN New York called uh, Executive Outcomes and said, would you be willing to go in and try and stop the genocide in uh, Rwanda? Um, as I say, the EO uh, presidents or whatever, the executive sort of did a back of the cocktail envelope calculation and said, sure, you know, we can do this. We'll be in the ground in two weeks. And we'll hand it over to the UN in six weeks. That was their plan. Uh, I subsequently, as an academic down in uh, South Africa, I got them to flesh out their plan and uh, write it up, which I, I published on my uh, email list. Um, and it simply has since been shared around. But the, the reality was that there's almost no country in the world that could have been on the ground in Rwanda in two weeks um, as effectively as executive outcomes. There may be three or four, right? United States, maybe the UK and France, not many, maybe Russia. Uh, expeditionary missions are really difficult for militaries to do much easier for a private company that's essentially using international resources to do that sort of thing. So the other thing I think we have to consider about is, um, is that where we want to go? Do we want to do humanitarian rescue on that kind of scale using private companies to do this sort of thing? And that's um, my experience. And when you talk to the, the, the uh, governmental sector, nobody's ready to do that. Nobody wants the executive outcomes to go in and, and do that. But just keep this in mind that in general, we have no problem with private security companies being hired to protect 
mines, could be to protect factories, uh, even malls. Everybody's fine with that, right? But if you hire the same private security company to protect the village next to the mine, you know, or the township where factory is located, all of a sudden they're mercenaries for some reason, and that's wrong, even though they're really good at what they do. You know, we, we have to come to some sort of ethical compromise to figure this out. Uh, like what you just mentioned as ethical compromise, I think we need to get back to our previous guest uh, and ask the same question, or maybe we will have a kind uh, of uh, podcast with all the three of you at the same time. That but moving from uh, Africa uh, to other area where you have been involved, such as Afghanistan, uh, can you give us an account of different role that the private military is playing there right now? And do you think uh, the country that is widely known as the graveyard of empire might turn out to be a success story for private military? Let's say to narrow down the question further, what do you think uh, about uh, Mr. Prince, Eric Prince proposal to appoint Giserwa to the private military to bring order to a war-torn country? So, uh... Yeah, I know Eric well. He was uh, Blackwater was a member of uh, IPOA when I was running the association. I, I got to know him well. I always thought his heart was in the right place. We are on opposite ends of the political spe spectrum, but uh, he's come up with some good ideas, and, and, and some of them have been quite successful. Some I would say have been less successful, maybe weren't as good <laughs> ideas. But um, a little bit about the terminology. When you start talking about private military companies in Afghanistan, I would say there aren't any. Because a private military company, of course, by my definition, some academics definition, a private military company is a company that's willing to do offensive operations on behalf of its client. Um, and that's kind of what Prince has been at, uh, advocating for in Afghanistan. Um, but mostly what we have, or entirely what we have at this point, is private security companies operating in Afghanistan, which again, defensive, protective, you know, hired to, to defend a person, place, or thing, and so on. Um, I think. Uh, we have a lot of companies supporting the Afghan army and Afghan police. They're maintaining the armored vehicles and unarmored vehicles. They're doing a lot of logistics for those uh, things. So we have a lot of companies doing that, which is not really security or not even private military operations. Um, what we're not seeing though, is that the private companies going into combat with the military or police, um, or even what might be known as mentoring. Uh, Prince's idea is really based on the idea of the, you know, the Green Beret model, you might call it. Green Berets, is, when they were first put together, for example, used in Vietnam, you would have a base that would have one team of Green Berets, maybe 20 Green Berets, and then several hundred local uh, military people that they or, or militias that they would advise. But the Green Berets would go into the field with them. Uh, and work as advisors in the field and do a lot of the technical work, the communications work, for example, uh, calling in uh, airstrikes, things like that, because they had that, those skill sets. Uh, and it made uh, the much larger uh, local force far more effective. And this is kind of the model that I think uh, Prince has been advocating for Afghanistan. Um, it's not something that's unique to the private sector. Um, certainly executive outcomes when they operated in Sierra Leone, they operated with the, with the uh, Sierra Leone military. Um, when they operated in Angola, they operated with the Angolan military. And so you had a small number of contractors essentially working with a much larger military as mentors, going in the field, getting shot at, but also providing a lot of the skill sets that are necessary to make them far more effective. Um, this is something in Afghanistan that could be done by the U.S. military or another NATO military. You can do exactly the same thing that Prince is advocating for, but do it with military people. 
but the reality is, uh, I think we've seen that the NATO is, especially the U.S. nowadays, is pretty skittish about losing people uh, in Afghanistan, um, even if they're doing what we want them to do as a policy. And even if a policy that's like 20 years old is at risk, they're not going to put the military uh, at that kind of uh, that level of operation. And that's a shame. So Prince is basically just saying, look, here's the technique that you guys should be doing. We can do it with private guys. They don't even have to be Americans, right? They could be from anywhere, so the right kind of training and so on. But actually go in the field with the Afghan military, the Afghan units and police, uh, and provide that extra uh, expertise. Uh, I think one thing we have seen of the Afghan military and police is they're, they're not bad. Uh, and in fact, um, in many cases, their they're bravery borders on foolhardy. Um, they're willing to fight, uh, but they will need the means to fight. and. Uh, they need the expertise and skill sets, which take generations to develop. Some of which they have, but they could use a lot more. And I think for Afghanistan, Prince's idea is, is not a, a terrible idea. The way he rolled it out using the term Viceroy and things like that is, is not a good idea. But the basic concept of putting uh, uh, NATO class professionals out with the Afghan military and providing those necessary skill sets, uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah, um, since we're, we're discussing on, on to this issue of, of Blackwater and or sort of now current, you know, decadence, that we've been kind of talking about this, but there's, there is, you would probably agree with me that there's an image problem uh, or serious image problem for uh, private security, private military. And given, I think just um, last, last week, I think, or this week, uh, this is issue of, of um, Silver Corpse, uh, Green Beret, caught in Venezuela trying to stage a coup. You mentioned it briefly earlier about uh, how you address these kind of concerns. Maybe if we get back to it now, into what do you do when such issues appear? How do you solve this image problem? Do you address it through, um, you know, the, towards restructuring companies or admonishing them, or do you go to the media and you set the image right. And I want to like see. I want to see if you can uh, answer this question in light of the evolving situation in the Middle East, and see if if this if there is an image change. Do you see an expanding role for private security and private military in the Middle East beyond maybe let's say even uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, which is which are two places that we kind of know that there have been some involvement of private security? Um, well, great question. I, I don't know if we have enough days to, to answer that one. <laughs> Let me say this. Um, when you look at what Silver Corp or whatever it was in Florida did, and, and even if you want to bring up a Wagner Group in uh, you know, out of Russia, um, you'll notice that those organizations are not part of, part of ACOCA. They're not part of ISOA. Um, they're operating at a different level. In the case of Wagner Group, they're pretty much an arm of the Russian government. Uh, we'll see about Silverco. It's, uh, that's a very, very bizarre situation. But both of those cases, and also I think we need to keep in mind, you know, when we think of this whole mercenary terminology and stuff, if you're murdering somebody, if you're a civilian and you're killing another civilian, as Silverco was in Afghanistan or in uh, Venezuela, that's still murder, right? You're not operating as a military. You're not doing legal security work. Um, that still has that issue. As an industry, and one reason IPOA, ISOA was set up was to address exactly this issue of, of uh, how is this industry perceived? 
nobody is going to hire these companies, much less the UN, you know, unless they feel that these companies are operating professionally, are doing things the way they should be done. Um, and I think um, uh, if you've talked to um, Chris Mayer, if you're going to be talking to Colonel Chris Mayer, um, he always makes the point that the industry really needs to separate itself from these bad actors or these dark companies. Uh, and he's right about that. And from the very beginning, IPOA, ISOA, we reached out to the to the uh, media, to the journalists, to the policymakers, uh, and we gave them information. And we were always honest about it, right? We're not going to like lie about something. If there's a problem in the industry, we have to admit there's a problem. We have to have a plan to solve that problem. Um, so we, from the very beginning, we worked with the, uh, with journalists, I don't know, we, for 10 years, we had our annual summit uh, at the National Press Club here in Washington, D.C. I mean, it was literally that open. Uh, and uh, that was a good thing. It was, we wanted the press to be involved. We wanted them to see what we were doing. Um, our annual conference would bore them to tears because we were addressing, you know, legal issues, financial issues, things like that. Not talking about whether, you know, mercenaries or not mercenaries, that was kind of pointless. Um, so to make an industry that's going to last, you really had to address that issue and be ready when something like Venezuela happens and to say, look, that's not us. Those are that's crazy stuff that's going on there. Um, but it's definitely not the companies that are part of us. Um, it's a peer reviewed thing, right? So one of the reasons that a lot of the security companies, especially joined IPOA in the early days, uh, was because they wanted to say, look, here we are now in Iraq and you were sort of, a, as they say, wild west. And there are a bunch of companies that say, we do this right. We're going to do this professionally. We're not going to do this under the table or whatever. Uh, so it was the industry coming together and saying, these are the good guys. And if you as a client, whether you're a government or a uh, extractive company or an oil company or something like that, if you want to hire the right people, then hire them from ISOA or ICOCA now. Um, so I think that's really important. Blackwater doesn't exist anymore. Um, after what happened in Easter Square, uh, and other incidents involved with Blackwater, it couldn't get track contracts. RAC, first of all, said you can't operate in this country. Um, and, you know, if you have run a company, why would you want some company, why would you want a security company having those kinds of problems working for you? You don't. So Blackwater was having a problem getting contracts. It had to change. They changed the name initially, but then it was sold and it's been sold and uh, blended in with a number of companies. I don't know if anybody who ever worked at Blackwater is still with the current Constellus um that's there but uh the reality was that the, the whole blackwater idea and running a company that way with with that kind of attitude uh just wasn't going to work um and so it self-selected itself you're going to run a professional company you got to do it professionally or you'll never get a contract um what black what blackwater did beyond the human contest uh cost of, of that was terrible for the industry it was a disaster for the company obviously um but again, ISOA, ICOCA reinforce the importance of accountability and the industry benefits from accountability and responsibility. Nobody's going to hire companies if they don't think they can hold them accountable or if they don't think they can operate professionally. Uh, and you need associations like this, essentially say, here's the standards we have. Here's our, here's our bottom line. If you're going to be in this industry, you're going to have to operate to these levels. Uh, there's always going to be problems, and that's why you have accountability mechanisms, why we had ours and why ICOCA has theirs. Um, you need to be able to make sure that those are addressed and not swept under the carpet. Uh, and I think uh, even we've seen with the best companies, bad things will happen. And how does a good company handle that problem as opposed to a bad company? And nine times out of 10 is how they hide it. If they hide it, then that's clearly a sign of a company that has some issues. If a company is very open about it, 
addresses the problem and says, here's how it's not going to happen in the future. That's what you want to see. And that's why you have a professional association like ICOC and ISO. Yeah, like as you mentioned, accountability is a term uh, that is quite recurrent uh, in our podcast. Uh, and uh, it's very important uh, that these companies are accountable in uh, whatever they perform uh, in, in terms uh, of uh, security service. Uh, but uh, looking at the perspective the, from our part of the world here in Singapore, uh, there is a, a common perception that uh, private military looks like a Pandora box. Once you open it, it will invite uh, all sorts of unsavory character and state will stop taking responsibility, especially for violence emanating uh, from within their borders. Uh, does Singapore have anything to gain for encouraging privatization of the security industry, especially in this area in East Asia? So I don't know if these this is a good example, but Singapore, of course, um, used to have a riot squad, I don't know if they still do, that was made up of former British Gurkhas, right? Now, they worked for the government, but they were not related to any of the ethnic groups in Singapore, and they were used to basically make sure that whoever got out of hand, you had a neutral party that would come in and make sure that, um, that it gets sorted out in a neutral way. And uh, in some cases, when you look at a private company, you're kind of getting the same sort of package, right? But smaller companies, as they become more involved in international stability operations, especially regionally, uh, they're going to need the expeditionary capabilities that the stability operations industry offers. And that's beyond security, obviously, but just simply getting from point A to point B, having a base built for you, having all your vehicles maintained, all that sort of stuff is really expensive. And, um, and it's easier to outsource that stuff and means that you're, it makes a small military far more, far more cost effective. Um, ultimately, even for the United States, which I argue is the most capable military in the world, um, the private sector allows it to focus more on core capabilities. And this is true of any military, the smaller the military, probably even more so. Uh, you want your military doing military stuff, not peeling potatoes or, or you know, fixing uh, diesel engines, right? So small militaries, it means that more people can be doing the mission, not worrying about where the rations are coming from, uh, not doing the power, not doing the internet, all that stuff can be provided for them and the private sector lets them do that. Um, on the security company thing, um, we do see small militaries hiring security companies uh, like the United States, many US bases are protected by private security, military bases. Um, and it just makes sense, you know, you're training military guys to do military things, not essentially be gate guards or mall cops or whatever else, right? It's kind of a waste of it. And, you know, since the U.S. won all volunteer in its military back in the late 70s, um, this is this realization that people aren't joining the army to peel potatoes, right? They're joining the army should be in the military and serve their country. And peeling potatoes is a really crappy way to do it. That could be outsourced. Um, again, for a small military, Singapore is a very professional, well-equipped military. I'd love to see them more involved in peacekeeping operations and so on, but I, I guarantee it uh, when they do go on these things in any scale, they're going to bring private companies with them or they're going to hire private companies to provide those services to really let them do what they need to do. So I think so. there's a lot that can be done. Um, I think Singapore is more sophisticated than most small countries. So I think, uh, you know, when it comes to writing the contracts and writing the rules, how these companies work, uh, they can probably do a better job than most. Um, but nevertheless, I think any small country that wants to really get involved in these international operations, I think it makes sense to work with the private sector. Uh, there's a lot of guidelines that they can get from other countries on how to do this uh, and what mistakes not to make, but, uh, but it just makes sense.
Now, to end the interview, I want to ask you a question that we plan on asking all of our guests. And it is, what will the future of warfare and security management in a complex environment look like in the coming 30 years? So I think your best example is to look at the Pentagon and how it's evolved, especially since 2001. Um, and it's again, there are within the Pentagon, within the US government, they're trying to figure out how comfortable they are with the private sector taking over many of the tasks. Um, it's interesting to me to see uh, some of the red line things, for example, uh, aerial, aerial refueling can sometimes be outsourced. There are actually private companies that will refuel aircraft uh, in the air. Um, it's not really a dangerous job, but it's one that you need a certain kind of expertise in and stuff, and, and they're starting to do that. The U US Pentagon is buying a gazillion Boeings to do this now. I think that as a taxpayer, that's a waste of money, but there's other reasons, political reasons, perhaps they're doing that. Nevertheless, a lot of other things have been outsourcing uh, and quite successfully. And so I think the US military is a really good model to look at. Um, a lot of their decisions have been made not because they had to. I mean, the US military has some insane budget. They can pretty much do whatever they want. Uh, but their reality that it makes sense for them to outsource certain skill sets, uh, say running the uh, drones, uh, surveillance drones, right? Unarmed drones. Again, does that have to be a military operation or military certainly in maintaining it, things like that? And they found, no, it doesn't have to be military. There's no real reason it needs to be military. So um, I think the, it's a good model to look at. The United Nations, African Union, are uh, going the same direction. Uh, I think the efficiencies that you get from the private sector are indisputable. If you need to do things on a large scale, and again, whether it's building a, a massive uh, um, refugee camp or uh, doing a large medical operation and stuff, it just makes sense to go to the private sector and you get, you know, you come, you get a company that's able to tap into the world market for whatever skill sets you need or whatever equipment you need or whatever else. And it just, uh, it just makes a lot of sense. So with the UN, they always have problems getting enough troops to do these missions. And a lot of that was because those troops were doing a lot of the support work that they don't need to do anymore. And so you have, when you get a certain number of Fijians in or whatever else, they're able to really focus on their mission. They don't have to worry about taking care of things at the base. Uh, and so on. And so that, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind, the U.S. military is now pivoting towards the big wars, the what they call large power confrontation and so on. When you talk about a big war, if you go back to the you know, Cold War, the Soviet versus U.S. and what could have happened in a, in a war there, probably not going to have a whole lot of private contractors involved with where the level of lethality is that high. But 99.9% .9 of the conflicts in the world have been low intensity conflicts um, where there is a manageable risk and uh, there is a huge role for the private companies in that. Uh, and for countries or, that are trying to do something, a mission that lasts 20 years like Afghanistan, um, it makes a lot of sense to keep your military to a minimal size and a minimal risk and just outsource a lot of that stuff to the private sector. Um, which is far at far less risk, which is not a target, and saves you a ton of money and allows you to do a 20-year policy. Uh, now, whether you want to do a 20-year policy is another story, but if it's going to happen, having the private sector involved is going to save you a lot of money and probably improve the way you do things. Doug, thank you very much for joining us today. It has been a, a great listening from, uh, from your, for your insight. Uh, and also please allow me to thank uh, our BOTG group at MEI, without whom this podcast will never be possible. 
namely Eugene Lim, Lin Wei Chen, Alistair Law from Events and Communication team at the Middle East Institute, and our Associate Director, Karl Skedigan. Also, a special thanks to all our listeners. Please follow us on the various social media platforms and send us your comment and feedback. We would love to hear from you. In closing, I want to plug our next podcast with Mr. Raffaello Pantucci. Mr. Pantucci is a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Service Institute for Defense and Security Study, and he is also currently a Visiting Senior Fellow at Nanyang Technology University here in Singapore at the Rajaratnam School of International Study. He has written extensively on terrorism and counterterrorism, as well as China relations with his Western neighbors. In our upcoming podcast, we will shift the focus to less formalized men with arms, namely non-state militia. In particular, we will talk about what happens when foreign fighters in Afghanistan and Syria start to head home. And that's all for today. Thank you.